Okay, Acts chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, if you're familiar with your geography, you'll know that today Ethiopia is a pretty small country. But back then, Ethiopia was basically everything in Africa south of the Nile. So it was this vast, expansive area. Uh, And this guy was the treasurer of that entire region. So this was a man of some clout, a man of some incredible influence. Now also just to explain, back then if you were a man working in the palace in close proximity to the queen, they wanted to make sure that you didn't get any frisky ideas And so, very generously, very thoughtfully, very kindly, they took care of all of that by castrating you. Basically, that's what a eunuch was. Now, if there are any kids here, and you're not quite sure what I'm talking about, and you have any further questions related to that, just ask your parents when you get home. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to explain it to you in a little more detail than I've got time for right now. Anyway, back to the story. The eunuch, remember kids, ask your parents about that later. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture that he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And so, beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there, and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. Now, I want to try and unpack this story for you under three main headings. First of all, I want to show you how Christianity is way more inclusive than you perhaps expect. Secondly, I want to try and show you how it is way more exclusive than perhaps you'd expect. 
And finally, I'm going to wrap it all up by trying to explain why it is both at one and the same time. You see, most people would say, well, look, you're either inclusive or exclusive. But the fact is, Christianity is radically inclusive and radically exclusive. And it can be both because it is both. But more of that later. Let's start, though, with the inclusivity of Christianity. Now, you may not have realized this, but uh, up until this story... Up until Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, the whole story in Acts has largely concerned the responses of groups of people to the gospel. But what we have in this passage is the first story in Acts of an individual convert. Now, straight away, I think there are at least two things we've got to notice. First of all, how fundamentally different the two main characters in the story really are. They're racially different, they're socially different, they're also different sexually, and because of being castrated, remember kids, ask your parents about that later, the eunuch was formally disqualified from entering into the temple worship. So they are religiously different as well. So they're pretty much as different as it was possible to be. Second thing to notice is how incredibly direct God's intervention had to be in order for this whole connection to be made. And so in verse 26, we read that an angel told Philip to go to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That would have been a walk of about 165 miles. So it wasn't just round the corner, it was quite a big ask. But I guess if an angel appears out of nowhere and tells you to do something, you probably just obey. And that's what Philip did. He went on that trek. And then in verse 29, we see that when he sees the Ethiopian, the Holy Spirit prompted him, said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Now, do you know why the Spirit had to say that? Why the Spirit had to prompt him to do that? It's because a Jewish man doesn't normally hang out with an Ethiopian eunuch. Philip wouldn't naturally have approached that guy unless the Holy Spirit had first prompted him. By the way, you might have noticed it in the story. We're also told at the very end in verse 39 that as soon as the baptism happens, the Spirit snatched Philip up and he finds himself miles away. Now, if you're looking for some kind of explanation about that, sorry, I haven't got one other than, I guess, God's God. He can do whatever he likes. He's more powerful than we can fully understand. But from beginning to end, there's no mistaking that this was a divine encounter. Every single aspect of this story happened because of God's initiating intervention. There are further two things I think we can learn from this. First of all, the Spirit of God strongly desires racial barriers between people to be overcome. In fact, not just racial barriers, every barrier. It's one of the most obvious themes if you're reading all the way through the book of Acts. It's like over and over and over again, it is the Spirit who has to force the Christians to break through barriers to repeatedly get out of their comfort zone, to be dealing with and embracing people of different races, different cultures, different backgrounds. Now, I think the reason why 
the Spirit has to keep on doing that isn't particularly flattering. You see, throughout his entire earthly ministry, if you remember, Jesus was continually saying, look, I want my message to go to all peoples. I want the good news to go to all ethnic groups, to all races, to all cultures. Which is why at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the famous Great Commission, Jesus says, go to all nations. Beginning of the book of Acts, he says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus, in every way, says to his followers, look, my message isn't just for people like you. No, it's for all races. It's for all peoples. It's for everyone. And yet, when you get into the book of Acts, every place Christian leaders were being called to open their arms to someone of a different race, or a different culture, or a different background, God still had to practically beat them over the head with the Holy Spirit. It still didn't come naturally to them. You know, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being grieved if we don't love what God loves, which must mean that if Christians of one race either show disdain or contempt or just simply avoid or ignore people of other races and other cultures, or if we show contempt for people over issues of sexuality or social background or class, it quenches the spirit. It absolutely grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Just have interest. Do any of you want to hear the voice of the Spirit. Anyone interested? A few people, reasonably, mildly interested to hear the Spirit. Well, here it is. In essence, Philip, you can put your name in there if you like, run up to that racially different, sexually altered man that you would never normally have anything to do with and stay close that's the language of the Spirit. That's the trajectory of the Spirit in the whole book of Acts, and it is still very much the trajectory of the Spirit today. It is still what the Holy Spirit desires with a passion. And so, not to put too fine a point on it, if there are people that you see here in Birmingham, or dare I say, even in this church, who are maybe different to you racially, cultural groups who you kind of look down your nose at, maybe secretly, you wouldn't say it out in public, but secretly you despise in some way, you are resisting the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God says loud and clear, go, cross that barrier. I want you to get to know them. I want you to stay close to them. It's the first thing. The Spirit of God desires deeply that all barriers to the gospel be well and truly obliterated, totally overcome. Secondly, the other thing I think we're learning here, it's very important, it's again a theme in the whole book of Acts, is that Christianity really doesn't belong to one culture more than another. 
So earlier on in chapter 8, we see a whole bunch of Samaritans getting converted. Remember, Samaritans were geographically close, but racially alienated, because the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. But here we see a whole crowd of them coming to faith in Jesus. Now, in this story, a black African gets converted. In the next chapter, we're going to see a Jewish Pharisee coming to faith. In the chapter after that, we're going to see the gospel reaching Europe. And then later on in Acts, we're going to see the gospel reaching the heart of Europe at that time. Rome. It's like over and over again, the book of Acts says there is no one culture to which Christianity belongs more than another. That's why in the very beginning, Jesus said the gospel is for every tongue, every tribe, every people group, every nation, every ethnicity. Listen, Christianity does not belong to this culture or that culture. It's not an extension, a function, or a product of any one culture. It comes down to us from above. It stands over all culture. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to recreate Christianity in the soil of every culture. And so the Spirit of God created Christianity in the Jewish culture in Jerusalem. So it never was initially a Western religion. But now, here in this story, we see the Spirit recreating Christianity into African culture. Spirit of God really does work just as well in one culture as another. And so what we see in this story is just how passionately concerned God is for diversity in his family. And if that means sending angels or teleporting traveling evangelists, well, so be it. Listen, God's church was never, ever, ever intended to be from just one nation or just one color. And from this point on in the story of Acts, it really won't be. So Christianity is unbelievably inclusive. In fact, I'd argue is fundamentally more inclusive than any other religion and way more inclusive than our secular culture today. But if you want to understand why Christianity is more inclusive, then first of all, you need to see how it is exclusive. And so secondly, let's look at the exclusivity of Christianity. Now, in all actuality, this doesn't really need to be a particularly lengthy point. The reason is probably you don't need a whole lot of argument to convince you that Christianity does make some pretty exclusive claims. I mean, you can see some of them right here in this story. For example, verse 34, when the eunuch is reading from the Isaiah scroll and asks Philip, what on earth does this text mean? Philip doesn't respond in a good acceptable postmodern way. He doesn't say, look, you have to recreate the meaning of the text for yourself. You have to decide what is right and wrong for you. You have to decide what the text means for yourself. I mean, what right have I got to tell you? He doesn't do that. He says, you don't know I do. Here's the truth. It's all about Jesus. You've got to interpret all of the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Jesus makes sense of absolutely everything in all of scripture. In fact, Jesus makes sense of everything in all of life. You should interpret everything through him. And so he tells him the good news of Jesus. And the unit responds by asking, well, shouldn't I be baptized then? Now, baptism is basically an act 
acting out of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Baptism means that one way of life is now decisively over, a new way of life begins. In other words, baptism means I stop believing that and I now start believing this. I stop living that way. I put it to death and I start living this way. I die to being Lord over my own life and I now willingly choose to submit to the Lordship of Christ in everything in all of my life. That's what it means to become a Christian. It means admitting Jesus is Lord and I'm not. And so you can make a case that Christianity is the most culturally inclusive religion out there, but it's also the most exclusive religion. You see, every other religion pretty much has a founder who's basically saying, here's how to get to God. You know the popular image that every religion is a different path up to the top of the mountain, but we're ultimately all going to the same God? You almost get there if it's true that every single religion says this is the way up. Yeah, they, they seem to be going different ways, but they're all equally valid because they're all going to make it to the top in the end. That works, except for Christianity. Jesus doesn't say, look, I'm here to show you how to find God. Jesus says, I am God, and I've come to find you. You would never, ever, ever make it anywhere close to the top of the mountain left to your own devices. I've come because I am the God that you were desperately seeking. You see, if you have one religion, unlike all of the others, in which the founder says, I am the God everybody else is seeking, then that is either a better religion than all the rest, or it is worse because he's a liar. It either has to be better or it has to be worse because it claims to be the only way. See the paradox, the conflict? It means Christianity is the most culturally diverse, most inclusive culturally, yet also the most exclusive in its claims. So how on earth does that work? Well, funny enough, that is my third point. Let's look at the reason why it is both. Really? At the end of the day, funnily enough, it all comes down to understanding this story we read at the beginning. I think the key question is this. Why on earth is this eunuch reading the Isaiah scroll so intently? What's the significance of it? Well, if you want to answer that question, maybe you don't, but I'm going to answer it for you anyway, you need to understand a little bit about the background and what brought the Ethiopian eunuch to this point. First of all, then, who is this guy? Well, for starters, he's pretty much as successful as it's possible to be. We're told he's the finance minister of the nation of Ethiopia. He's like the chancellor of the exchequer. He's incredibly powerful. He would have had a whole lot of influence we also know that he can read. Hardly anyone back then could read. So he's not only a man of great power, but he's also incredibly well educated. Notice also that he owned a scroll of Isaiah. Now back then, that was unheard of. I mean, the scrolls were always kept in some public place, like the synagogue, the schools, and so on. So here's a man who's unbelievably able. He's made it to the very top. 
he's brilliant, he's educated, he's wealthy. And the second thing we learn is he paid quite a high price to get there. You see, none of the ancient cultures were quite as individualistic as we are today. Today, you, you get a whole load of your self-worth from your own achievements. Look, I've done this, or I've made it to this position, or, or look at these possessions, and we kind of get value from all of that. But self-worth back then came pretty much from the standing of your family. You only had honour if your family standing was good. And you had no way of having any kind of legacy unless you were to pass on your name and your honour to your children. So here's a man who had made the ultimate sacrifice in order to get power. He'd given up the very idea of ever having a family in a completely family-dominated culture, which would have meant a life of isolation, a life of loneliness. So this guy has made it to the top. He's paid a pretty big price to get there. But here's the third thing we know. He's not happy. He's not content. He's made it to the top, paid a price, but he is spiritually empty. It's like there's this ache inside of him. Now, how do we know that? Well, have a look where he's coming from. As far as the Jews were concerned, they didn't know of anything in the world geographically beyond Ethiopia. It was well over a thousand miles away. It was on the outskirts of the known civilized world. When Jesus sent the disciples to the uttermost ends of the earth, kind of Ethiopia in their framework of thinking would have been the ends of the earth. What does he say in verse 27? This guy was on his way home having gone to Jerusalem in order to worship. Now can you imagine in this guy decided to tell all his friends in Ethiopia, look I'm, I'm leaving this prestigious job for several months, a year or more, I'm going to take this incredibly dangerous, risky, long journey to Jerusalem in order to worship at the temple. Everyone in Ethiopia would have been saying, what? I mean, are you kidding me? What's wrong with all of our own temples? We've got plenty of gods that you could worship here. Why why, why go there? He says, I want to learn about this God of Israel. I want to learn about this God that I've heard all about. I want to learn about the God of the Scriptures. Now, what on earth would make someone do something like that? I suggest there's only one answer. This is a man in serious spiritual search mode. This is a man who must have been seriously empty. It's like he's made it to the very top and he is still not happy. There is still this ache inside him. You know, one of the reasons why perhaps more people aren't spiritually searching right now is because those of us who haven't made it to the top, however we define the top to be, still think we will finally be happy if somehow we get up there, if we get to that place that we've created in our mind as if we get that thing, then we'll be satisfied. If we just get that promotion, or if we get that promotion, it then leads to that other promotion, or if we just get to this level of income, then everything will be okay. Or if we just get this dream house, and we get the dream house, and then we can extend it, and then trade it in for what ultimately will be our dream house. If we just could get this family, if I could just find a husband or a wife, or a different husband or a different wife, 
Or if I could just have kids, then everything would be okay. Or if our kids could finally produce grandkids who are the reward for the pain of having kids, then everything will be okay. If I could just get this reputation, if I could just have this kind of influence so people respect me, whatever we think of as being the top. But for those few people who have made it to the top, all of their illusions have been shattered. They know that there is nothing there emotionally, nothing there psychologically, nothing there spiritually. So here's a man who is seriously spiritually dissatisfied with all of his success, everything he had accomplished. We know that in his culture he'd made it to the top. He's paid a pretty terrible price to get there and he's still incredibly empty and so he tries absolutely everything to go on this trip to Jerusalem to 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 get to the temple there's one more thing we know about this trip he probably wouldn't have known this until he got to Jerusalem but when he arrived there and attempted to go into the temple he would have been met by the bouncers on the door who would have told him in no uncertain terms, sorry, you cannot come in. Eunuchs are excluded from the temple. That was the rule. A whole load of people back then who weren't allowed into the temple to worship. And sexually mutilated people were absolutely on that list. Can you imagine? I mean, here's a man who just risked everything to get there. He's traveled over a thousand miles He's in major spiritual search mode. He gets to the temple and he's told, look, people like you are not allowed in here. Can you imagine the turmoil, the despair as he's traveling home? Imagine the confusion, how rejected he must have felt, how unclean, how unworthy, how cast off he must have felt. Well, all of that helps to answer that question about why he's reading the Isaiah scroll so intently. You see, we're told that he's reading Isaiah 53, and if you were to open up the Isaiah scroll to that chapter, you'd also, in all probability, be reading what it says a few chapters later in Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. And I've got to tell you, this is where it gets incredibly profound. Because for all of those of you who are perhaps not so familiar with what Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 5 say, it's not necessarily a passage you would have memorized. This is what it says. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. Other translations, other versions put it. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Is there relevance to that? Well, it goes deeper. Next bit. And don't let the eunuchs say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I'll give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Can you imagine the impact of those words on that Ethiopian eunuch? 
Don't say that the Lord will exclude you from his people. Don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. I'll give them a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give, for the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Remember, eunuch lived in a time where pretty much the most important things were sons and daughters who carried on your name. And he's reading this and thinking, wait a minute, how in the world could I possibly have an everlasting name? How could I get something that's better than sons and daughters? It's absolutely astonishing. He's been told in his own cultural terms that there is a salvation that goes beyond not only power and success, but also family. But he doesn't know what it is. So he's pretty desperately trying to find the answer, and he ends up grappling with this astounding passage in Isaiah 53. Verse 4 says this, Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was being pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And then straight after that, at the exact verses he was looking at when Philip came up to him. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before the shearers, he didn't open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? It's like at the point of despair, the eunuch stumbles across this cryptic message of hope. And he's desperately trying to work it all out. He's thinking... Who on earth is this figure who voluntarily becomes like a eunuch? Who voluntarily is cut off without descendants? Who voluntarily takes injustice? I'm reading this and it seems like this guy, whoever he is, is going through everything I'm experiencing, but he seems to be doing it as a substitute for me. He's doing it in my place. Who is this? At which point, Philip, sent by an angel and then prompted by the Spirit, jogs up and asks, in that moment, do you understand what you're reading? And Philip goes on to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch, and I suggest to all of those here in this room today who are perhaps searching for something more, to all of those in this room right now who, for whatever reason, feel excluded, feel shut out, feel as though you don't count, you're on the edge, you're different from others. All those in the room who perhaps are living with deep despair. Philip says, I know just who Isaiah is writing about. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the substitute. In Jesus Christ, God himself came and put himself on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin. Just to explain, sin is basically you and me substituting ourselves for God. 
being our own bosses, acting as though we are in charge. But salvation, in essence, is God substituting himself for us, willingly choosing to put himself where only we deserve, and bearing our shame and our pain and our sin and our dishonor. It's as though Jesus became a lamb who was slain. If you like, Jesus became a leper to the lepers. He became a eunuch for the eunuchs. He was made unclean so that you could be made clean. Jesus was excluded so that you would never have to be. He was brutally cut off so that you could have his everlasting name. That right there is the good news of Jesus. And it's the key to understanding why Christianity is both way more inclusive and way more exclusive than you'd ever, ever, ever expect. And in fact, why the exclusivity of Christianity actually inevitably leads to inclusivity. You see, the moment you know that Jesus died as a substitute in your place, and you experience firsthand in your life the free, gushing, overwhelming waves of his grace and his love and his mercy and his favor towards you, that results in the deepest possible conversion the most dramatic turnaround. It changes not just the outer stuff going on in your life, not just your appearance, it changes your core identity. It's not primarily based anymore on gender or on race or on sexuality. It's not based on something that you can be proud of that you have or you do, which you feel makes you better or superior or more worthy than others. It's nothing to do with your background your education, or your position, your standing in society. is incredibly exclusive. It is solely based on who you are in Christ. In Christ, and in Christ alone, you are welcomed in. You are given incredible honor. Suddenly, you have a name, You have a glorious future. You will never, ever, ever be forgotten or cast aside. And when you know, not just in your head, but you experience deep in your life the richness of that truth, then there is suddenly no need for you to ever again define yourself in any of the ways that society so frantically and desperately does. Because first and foremost, your identity is now as a child of God. And if you get that, not just believe it, but you know it, you experience it, you're living in the good of it, it completely demolishes all of the barriers of race, gender, sexuality, class, or whatever. Do you understand? When you become a follower of Jesus, when you become a Christian, it changes fundamentally your entire identity. And as a result, it fundamentally changes the way you think and the way you act. I mean, it just goes without saying, you'll become incredibly inclusive. You see, as long as you're saying, no, it's all about me, 
I'm still in charge. I'm working incredibly hard to try to succeed in my own strength. I'm, I'm doing everything I can, making all of these sacrifices to try to be popular, to, to make it so that I know that I'm okay and other people look at me and they think I'm okay as well. As long as you're living that way, as long as you're operating that way, then you'll still have all of those feelings of superiority. You'll still have all of that prejudice. You'll have all the self-righteousness that comes from that along with all of the deep gnawing insecurity and the unhappiness and the fear. But the moment you realize what Jesus has done for you and he takes you by the hand and you know in your heart that you are loved and you are accepted in him and suddenly all the pressure to perform or be someone that you know you're not or you never can be, that pressure's gone. You never have to prove yourself to anyone again. It changes everything. Listen, the good news of the gospel is not live a good life and try desperately hard in your own strength to become more like Jesus. That's not good news. The gospel, despite the the, the popular way of putting it, is, is absolutely not what would Jesus do. It's not that. The gospel is what has Jesus done. That and that alone is what changes you. And what's the sign you've been changed? What's the evidence of conversion? We see an example of it here in this story. It's a Jewish man putting his arms around a sexually altered black man and calling him brother. It's living a life of radical inclusivity. It's breaking down dividing walls and embracing others. You see, if your identity has been completely changed through the exclusive work of Christ, then surely your view of others will be completely changed as well. Now what on earth could do that? At the end of the day, it's only the gospel. It's only the good news of Jesus.